not fear the one and only Tucker Carlson. He's here, right here, right now. Buck up, it's going to get better. Hello, welcome to Tuckered Out. I'm Troy. I'm Tyler. And we're here to talk a whole, whole bunch about America's number one propagandist, Tucker Carlson. But first, I want to say a quick thank you to some folks who signed up to support the show. Yes, we have uh, Blaine McDowell is just asking questions. Thank you, Blaine! (laughs) And we have Punchington is just asking questions. My firstborn is yours, Punchington. (laughs) Uh, Sincere, genuine thank you to people who are supporting us. It means a lot. Seriously, thank you so much. And I... I'm a terrible salesman, as anyone on this show has probably picked up on uh, listening to the show. But (laughs) something that I haven't done a a clear job of is explaining why someone might want to donate to the show. There is a lot more that I would love Tuckered Out to be. I have a whole bunch of projects in mind that I'd like to tackle different investigations I want to do. In addition to this podcast, now I have a job, I have a wife, all, all that good stuff. So, uh... If in, if we could eventually get this to something where I would be able to dedicate more of my hours to it, we could do a lot more. And if if you like what we do, you get to hear more. So that I'm not gonna spend any more time talking about it, but I I just felt like I I should probably explain what the what the benefit of supporting the show would be. And if you'd like to do that, you can find us on Patreon or there's a link on our website as well. All right, so Tyler, this was a tough week. Yeah, I so I go out of my way to avoid Tucker Carlson until I come here and have you uh, guide me through the week. But I saw a lot of thumbnails and news articles along the lines of Tucker Carlson has mental breakdown on live TV or <laughs> Nazi YouTube comment or Tucker Carlson segment. You decide. So I, I just I get the sense that this was a big week for Tucker. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there was there's a lot of t- tumult this week. We had the. Uh... The Derek Chauvin trial, and of course the conviction on all three tri- on all three counts. There, this week was my least favorite version of Tucker Carlson to cover. I struggled to put this show together this week because there's so little actual content. There's so little that I can dig into. My bread and butter is when it can be like it, this is what he's lying, and this is how he's lying about it. Here, he's just taking the worst possible stance on factual events and there's nothing i can do with that like the audience doesn't need me to be morally outraged for them yeah so i was grasping a little bit to get content to fill this episode and because of that to use last week's vocab the show is going to be bifurcated (laughs) (laughs) okay because not only was he just not bringing anything to the table they had a point where i couldn't fucking listen to him anymore but i think i was able to pull some positivity out of it if we can all make it through We shall try our best. Without further ado, let us go ahead and jump into uh, Monday's show. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. Tonight, closing arguments in Officer Derek Chauvin's murder trial just concluded in the state of Minnesota. Now, Americans have heard quite a bit about George Floyd over the last year and formed their own opinions. But most still cannot say with any specificity just how he died. And that's, of course, the essence of the whole story, how he died. So the closing arguments are a chance to assess actual evidence in the case. And you would think that would be good news. More facts, which we could always use. But no, said the media. Facts no longer matter, not when BLM's founding myth is at stake. Evidence only counts in countries that have due process, something that they are now telling us is an ugly relic of institutional racism. 
When unpopular people seem guilty, you just go ahead and punish them. That's the new rule. Years ago, we called this lynching. Now we call it equity. Starting off strong. Comparing this trial to lynching diminishes the horrors of racial violence in this country's history. Um, but T- Tucker doesn't give a shit. It's just a, a punchy thing to say to get his audience pissed off. And, and of course, his his uh, crack there about n- no one really knows how George Floyd died. Yeah, he said most people don't don't think there's enough evidence to say how, how George Floyd died. Yeah. I think most people who see video of someone sitting on someone else's neck with their knee for seven minutes and 47 seconds was it i think um is evidence enough to (laughs) yeah yeah you uh you would think um it was certainly enough for a jury yeah but what he's hinting at here is something tucker has hit on several times the last couple of weeks we covered it on our first episode but it's been a while and it's important so very briefly i'll just run over it again um Tucker likes to pretend that George Floyd died of a fentanyl overdose. Um, As most racists like to pretend George <laughs> Floyd died. Yeah, th- so there were two autopsies conducted of George Floyd's body, one from the Henman County Med- Medical Examiner and another private autopsy requested by his family. Both of them concluded at uh, George Floyd's death a homicide um, by restriction of uh, the, you know, restriction. The air- airflow, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it's true that he did have a, a high dose of fentanyl in his system and that that might've contributed to the event being fatal, but he wouldn't have died had it not been for the knee on his neck. Right. And w- what's interesting is that Tucker has hit that story and seeded it, seeded it enough times now that at this point when the trial is actually ongoing and tensions are highest, he doesn't need to, he doesn't need to enumerate that lie. His audience already knows it. He can just say, most people can't tell you how George Floyd died. Ah. <sighs> peak evil <laughs> <laughs> yeah um he's also very upset that congresswoman maxine waters weighed in that weighed in on the trial um maxine waters you know she's not the most carefully spoken member of congress <laughs> um so she's she's a target all the time for these people uh she she had a bit to say about the trial and tucker is gonna have a fucking field day with it Let's hear it. We have got to not only stay in the street, but we have got to fight for justice. But I am very hopeful, and I hope uh, that we're going to get a verdict that they say guilty, guilty, guilty. I don't know whether it's in the first degree, but as far as I'm concerned, it's first degree. It's well, we, we got to stay on the street. Uh, and we've got to get more active. We've got to get more confrontational. We've got to make sure that they they know that we mean business. We've got to make sure they know we mean business, she said. Well, that couldn't be clearer. Do what we say or we'll kill you. Yep, that's what she said. Y- yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, a point I make often on the show is that Tucker likes to play a clip and then immediately pretend they said something they didn't say. That right there is an escalation. <laughs> yeah. Holy shit. That's the message. Maxine Waters doesn't have much use for those Anglo-Saxon civic traditions like jury trials. Her demand was very clear. Convict Officer Derek Chauvin of first-degree murder or we will burn it down. No one asked the question, is Chauvin actually guilty of first-degree murder? And the answer is, you may believe he committed a crime, and he may have. But no honest person who has watched the trial would tell you he is guilty of first-degree murder. 
saying that, claiming that is not a rational evidence-based position, no matter who you voted for in the last election, and no matter what you think of George Floyd. In a fair system, no jury would convict Chauvin of first-degree murder. Chauvin also was not charged with first-degree murder. I was just about to ask. I don't think he was charged with first-degree murder. <laughs> yeah, the, the charges were second-degree unintentional murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter. Tucker is just being difficult. Yeah. He spends a good bit of time here making a boogeyman out of Maxine Waters, and most of his examples are from 30 years ago. Because <laughs> <laughs> so I guess he doesn't like how vocal she was during the LA race riots. Um, for example, he's he's got a... Uh, a story from those riots that he wants to point out. So how do you respond to people like this? Well, the only thing you can do is tell the truth about who they are. Maxine Waters is someone who supports mob violence. She always has supported it. We have known this. Almost 30 years ago, when race riots leveled huge parts of Los Angeles, Maxine Waters cheered them on. People want to know why I'm not saying exactly what they want me to say, she said at the time. They want me to walk out in watts like black people did in the 60s and say, cool it, baby, cool it. Well, I'm sorry. The fact of the matter is, whether we like it or not, riot is the voice of the unheard. It was quite a riot. 58 people were killed during those riots in 1992. Many more were seriously injured. One of those most seriously injured was a man called Reginald Denny. He was beaten nearly to death. He was left with permanent brain damage. Why? Because he looked the wrong way. He had the wrong color. A mob pulled him out of his truck and smashed his skull with a cinder block. It happened on camera. If you haven't seen it, here it is. How horrible to be a victim of violence because you have the wrong skin color. <laughs> <laughs> Can't imagine. It's a good thing that doesn't happen anywhere else in the country. Yeah. Um, so he plays the video of the attack in Reginald Denny. Obviously, it's horrible. Um, but he leaves out some vital context. Upon recovering from that attack, Reginald Denny sought to soothe the racial ten tensions associated with his assault. Uh, he regularly, regularly reminded reporters that most of his rescuers were black, as were the doctors who treated him. Denny also sought to make peace with his attackers' families. During a break in the trial, Denny approached the mother of one of the attackers and hugged her. Another one of the attackers, Henry Watson, later apologized to Denny during an appearance on The Phil Donahue Show, where the pair shook hands. So... To be clear, I'm not trying to whitewash what happened or make it sound like the attack on Reginald Denny was justified. But this is just one good example of how Tucker peels off all the pesky context from the outside world before he presents it to his viewers. In Tucker's conception, there are good guys and bad guys, and your position on the issue is, sim is as simple as good versus evil. In real life, it's always more complicated than that, but complexity has no, no place in Tucker's worldview. So yeah, after after feetmongering about thirty year old riots for a bit, he uh, he has a modern example too. Another mob came to the home of what they thought belonged to one of the witnesses in Derek Chauvin's defense. They smeared pig blood all over the house. What do you call that? Well, it's textbook. It's witness intimidation. Fighting things like that, witness intimidation, is precisely why we have a civil rights division at the Justice Department, to protect people's civil rights, especially the right to speak freely at criminal trials. That's what due process is. Where was Joe Biden's DOJ today? Swarming the scene to protect the civil rights of everyone involved, to protect the legal system itself? Nope. Sorry. They were too busy rounding up more elderly poor people who made the mistake of stepping inside the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, te technically speaking, this pig blood incident isn't witness intimidation because the, the witness um, who was vandalized, they they had already spoken to the trial and already given their testimony. 
So if anything, it was retaliation. Um, Tucker also wants to imply that the uh, authorities are just ignoring this incident, which is a lie. Authorities have announced that the suspects will face felony vandalism charges, so they're going to get in some trouble. Um, and that's all that I got from Monday's show. The rest of the day, he talks about a guy in Utah who got doxxed after donating $10 to the Kyle Rittenhouse Defense Fund. Um, and I don't want to talk about that for two reasons. One, it's kind of petty, and two, if we talk about Kyle Rittenhouse, I'm going to get mad and smash all my equipment. Same. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He brings on a Florida sheriff named Grady Judd, who has a whole Facebook page dedicated to residents of his community documenting how corrupt he is, including uh, one of his officers beating a man who was handcuffed. Um... Let's see, and then he reads a letter from the parent of a child at a private school in New York who complains about the school teaching critical race theory. Uh, it's, it's all very uninspired. Um, so then, moving on from there, we get into Tuesday. By the time Tucker goes on the air on Tuesday, the jury has found Derek Chauvin guilty on all three charges. Uh, this is a literally the only thing he talks about on Tuesday's show. Um, he cannot leave it alone. And he also has a fuck ton of guests. I I think maybe he just, like, didn't have a lot of material prepared, because if you account for commercials, Tucker shows about 40 minutes. In the span of that 40 minutes, he has 11 guests on Tuesday. What? <laughs> yeah. Jesus. Um, one of them is Candace Owens, but it, because we we have enough shit to wade through today, I, I did you a mercy. I didn't cut that one. Oh, Troy, I love you. <laughs> It'll never happen again. <laughs> I, just, I this is this is a time for celebrating. <laughs> I just hate her so much. She's so obnoxious. <laughs> so yeah, he uh, he fills as many guest slots as he can to bitch about the guilty verdict, and it's insufferable. For example, good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. The jury in the Derek Chauvin trial came to a unanimous and unequivocal verdict this afternoon. Please don't hurt us. The jurors spoke for many in this country. Everyone understood perfectly well the consequences of an acquittal in this case. After nearly a year of burning and looting and murder by BLM, that was never in doubt. Last night, 2,000 miles from Minneapolis, police in Los Angeles preemptively blocked roads. Why? They knew what would happen if Derek Chauvin got off. In the end, he didn't get off. If given the maximum sentence under the law, he will spend the rest of his life in prison. Is that a fair punishment? Is the officer guilty of the specific crimes for which he was just convicted? We can debate all that, and over this hour we will. But here's what we can't debate. No mob has the right to destroy our cities. Not under any circumstances, not for any reason. No politician or media figure has the right to intimidate a jury. And no political party has the right to impose a different standard of justice on its own supporters. Those things are unacceptable in America. All of them are happening now. If they continue to happen, decent, productive people will leave. The country as we knew it will be over. So we must stop this current insanity. It's an attack on civilization. At stake is far more than the future of Derek Chauvin or the memory of George Floyd. At stake is America. So before we consider the details of today's verdict, a bigger question, one we should all think about. Can we trust the way this decision was made? That's the promise of our justice system, that it's impartial that it's as fair as human beings can make it, that the cop who killed Ashley Babbitt will be held to the very same scrutiny as the cop who was just convicted of killing George Floyd, 
that political or ethnic considerations will play absolutely no role in jury deliberations, that justice will be blind. Can we say all of that in this case? And if we can't, why can't we? Okay, so he wants no one to trust the jury. <laughs> yeah, P- please don't hurt us was their verdict. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I don't know if you if you brought something about this already, but I I read an article this week saying that like of the thousands of people who have been shot by um cops in the last several years, I think the I think the article said since two thousand five, um only just over a hundred have been charged with anything. Wow. And only seven have been convicted for anything. That's crazy. So <laughs> Holy shit. It's not like <laughs> it's not like there's this like huge swath of cops getting thrown in jail or something. Like yeah. what's the outrage here? This is an example of how like it- when I say that people like Tucker aren't good faith actors, this is what I mean. Because the moment things don't go their way, they just change the terms. Yeah. So, like, oh, it, it was a guilty verdict? Well, the trial wasn't fair. Oh, we lost the presidential election? Well, the election was rigged. You know, it... Exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and for someone who complains all the time that his political enemies have no respect for the rule of law, Tucker sure seems to have no respect for the outcome of this trial. He just immediately undermines the verdict. Yeah, he completely... Just there's no consideration for the possibility that maybe the jury came to a verdict based on the, the evidence. <laughs> yeah, and and this has been planned for weeks. Like I, I haven't I haven't caught most of it since our first show. Maybe that was a mistake because Tucker, uh, he's hit on George Floyd probably once a week since we've been doing the show. Um, usually usually it was to uh, bring up again the the lie about it was a fentanyl overdose. Um. But then, as the as the trial was getting started and they were opening arguments, Tucker did a segment. Um, this is probably two, three weeks ago, where he was like, "The George Floyd trial is is ongoing now, but it may not be fair." He talked about all this quote unquote intimidation that they were expecting. Um, so this this was always going to be the the tact he took, no matter how the trial actually proceeded or no matter what actually happened. Right. Yesterday, he was upset about Maxine Waters weighing in on the trial. Today, he's pissed off at somebody else for that same reason. Just this morning, as the jury was still deliberating, the President of the United States said he was praying for a guilty verdict. I'm praying the verdict is the right verdict, which is, I think it's overwhelming in my view. I wouldn't say that unless the, the jury was sequestered now. Not hear me say that. When was the last time a sitting president weighed in on a jury decision before it was made? Answer, never. So Tucker's forgetting a couple of important examples. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know any off the top of my head, but I have a feeling that if I Googled it for five minutes, I could get you a long list. I bet you could even guess which president did did that the most. No, no, there's no no presidents (laughs) in recent memory who would have done anything like that, Troy. (laughs) <laughs> the most famous example of a president weighing in on an ongoing jury trial is actually when Richard Nixon declared that Charles Manson was guilty before that trial reached a verdict. That created such an outrage that it almost got the judge to declare Manson's case a mistrial. Um, more recently, President Obama actually stumbled into some similar things to this a couple of times. The most, ins- um, with his, it was normally ongoing investigations, but, um, 
The most infamous example is when he said that a police officer had acted stupidly while arresting a black scholar from Harvard. This is what led to Obama eventually holding a beer summit with the two men to try and defuse tensions. Um, Obama also weighed in early on the trial of accused 9-11 mastermind Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, and again in 2011 in the trial of Bradley Manning, now Chelsea Manning, stating that they had broken the law before the before Manning was convicted of leaking classified documents. Neither Nixon nor Obama have got anything on Donald Trump, though. Um, Trump did this constantly throughout his presidency, mm-hmm. uh, including recommending the death penalty or detention in Guantanamo Bay for a man accused of a truck attack in New York uh, while the trial was ongoing. A truck attack? Yeah, I, um, it's one of these things that happens like weirdly often when people like just drive, drive a vehicle into a crowd. Okay, um, gotcha. Bizarrely, Trump went the opposite direction regarding the trial of Ghislaine Maxwell, Jeffrey Epstein's accomplice, when he said that he, quote, wished her well ahead of her, tri- her trial for child sex trafficking. Can't imagine why. <laughs> he also offered up a possible defense for Kyla Rittenhouse but while that case was still under investigation. Um, not to mention the, the criminal cases against his allies Paul Manafort and Roger Stone, which Trump decried as hoaxes regularly during their respective investigations, eventually leading his own attorney general, William Barr, to state that Trump's tweets about Justice Department matters made it, quote, impossible for me to do my job. He also regularly tried to cancel investigations into himself and others. <laughs> yeah, r- real, he, he really loved the rule of law, that one. Yep. <laughs> it's because he's secretly a Democrat, Troy, that's why. <laughs> So in the middle of Tucker's cavalcade of guests, he accidentally brings on somebody who doesn't seem to be in on the narrative Tucker's trying to weave. Um, This is a longer clip, but I think their exchange at the end is pretty telling. Ed Gavin is a former deputy sheriff with the New York City Sheriff's Department. He joins us with his perspective on what this means for law enforcement. Ed Gavin, thanks so much for coming on tonight. Who's going to become a cop going forward, do you think? Well... I think um, people will still become uh, police officers. Um, it's um, it, it, this really is a learning experience for everyone. Um, let's face it: what, what we saw uh, in that video was pure savagery. I mean, the documentary evidence showed the police officer putting his knee on the per- perpetrator's neck while he was rear cuffed and his stomach was on the ground, causing positional asphyxia. So what I'd like to see, Tucker, is I'd like to see more training for police. I'd like to see the police trained as EMTs, like in the fire department. For example, in the New York City Fire Department, we have firefighters that are EMTs. But who gets to the scene first in most of these these situations? It's the police. So in reviewing the tape, what I saw, what I noticed was that the police officer removed um, the subject, Mr. Floyd, from his vehicle, and he was able to handcuff him, and then he was able to seat him on the ground, and he was handcuffed. At that point, they should have left him there, you know. There was no reason to move him. And obviously, Mr. Floyd was, um, he was emotionally disturbed. And at that point, you may want to say, hey, Mr. Floyd, let me take your pulse. Things of this nature. And we have to change the way we deal with people. Now, I've used hundreds of, I've used force on literally over 500 people in my 21-year career in the New York City Department of Correction and in the New York City Sheriff's Department. I've never had anybody go unconscious. And, you know, that was clearly an excessive, unjustified use of force. I think the verdict was just. I think we had documentary evidence. We had testimonial evidence. And 
you know, it was, it was an open and shut case. But moving forward, what we need to do, in my opinion, is we, we need to have... How about enforce the uh, law? Okay, do we need to do that? So, uh, hold on, wait, so wait, slow down. Do we, do we enforce the law? Like, let's say people are going through the windows in Macy's and the cops are just standing there. Do they resign no, no. because all, obviously inf- their honor is being no. violated, but they're not doing anything about it. When do they start doing something about it and protecting everyone else, not just George Floyd? So here, uh, I think Tucker's starting to get frustrated that this guy is in on the game. Yeah. Because um, he, he, he tries to push him more in the direction that is more uh, show friendly. But um, this officer, to his credit, doesn't really budge. No, no. What I, I want, I want people to protect. I want the police to protect people. But when specifically, what we're dealing here, we're dealing with a person in custody who was handcuffed and he was subdued. Right. At that point, you know, we have to take a different tact. And, and one of the things I just want to suggest, well, Tucker, I'm there's, totally there's a thing, to believe that. Yep. Yeah, they're, they're, the U.S. Department of Justice came out with a, a position paper on positional asphyxia and sudden death. It was published in, in 1995 and again in 1998. I think every law enforcement officer should read that. It should be read at roll calls. Because what it does, it talks about the physiology of a struggle. Now, like I said, Mr. Floyd was brought under control. What, what should have happened at that point is uh, EMS should have been summoned and he should have been placed in an ambulance. And a supervisor should have been yeah. called to the scene. I, I just think that... It was excessive, yeah, and well, it shouldn't happen. And what I'd like the, to see, the guy who did it looks like he's going to spend the rest of his life in prison. So I'm kind of more worried about the rest of the country, which, thanks to police inaction, in case you haven't noticed, is like boarded up. <laughs> so that's more my concern. But, but I appreciate you coming let, on, Ed Gavin. Thank let, you. Let, nope, done. Jesus Christ, he's doing a fucking Joker laugh. Yeah. <laughs> nope, done. <laughs> like, okay, I got two things out of that. First off. Who his opening question was who are gonna sign up to be police now? Is his insinuation that if cops can't murder people without repercussions, that people aren't gonna want to become cops? Because that's a really fucked up worldview. <laughs> yeah, if we're gonna be this hard on cops, who's gonna be a cop? He uh, maybe uh, people who don't want to murder people. Like I'm cool with that. <laughs> Yeah, I don't remember exactly where it is, but at some point he he hits that point again, and he's like, "I I wouldn't want to put myself in that position for fifty grand a year." <laughs> um, he also he's brought this up a couple of times before. He seems convinced that like uh, if we get rid of police, then they'll all just go and become private bodyguards for rich people, <laughs> or they'll just get other non-violent jobs. Like, <laughs> yeah, but. It, the, I thought that was interesting. That guy, um, he presented a, a view that wasn't consistent with the line on Tucker's show. Tucker kind of tried to nudge him and gave him a second chance, and then when he didn't get the answer he wanted again, it was just, nope, done. Yeah. Um. So the second thing that um I picked up on was, um, I missed this guy's name, but he's he's a police officer. Yes. Um. His suggestion is that we should train police to handle these situations alternatively. We could have people who aren't trained for violent confrontation to handle a drug overdose. Yeah. Or just someone who's on drugs not being violent. Yeah. We could have, you know, a doctor come instead. <laughs> uh, you know, something something like that. Like, we, we could, like, reduce the funds of the police. Is there a word for this? <laughs> you know, so you should really come up with one. I bet it wouldn't. I bet it wouldn't be controversial at all. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so then next up, uh, the guest who brought White Genocide to Tucker's show before it was cool, Heather MacDonald. Heather MacDonald is the author of The War on Cops. She joins us with reaction. Heather MacDonald, I, I, I'm concerned by the number of cops retiring. I think there are a lot of, there's some bad cops, certainly. Some who do use excessive force, we should get them out of police forces. But it seems like the message is if police officers are being forced to stand by and allow buildings to burn, and you've seen it in cities across the country, they don't do anything. Then, like, who would want that job, honestly? No one. The, the demoralization is so huge. We don't have hot riots tonight, Tucker, but we've been having a slow riot for the last year. We're going to have a slow riot for the next four years. Biden today said enough of these senseless killings. Was he referring to the dozens of blacks who are gunned down fatally every day in drive-by shootings? Was he referring to seven-year-old Jaslyn Adams, who was shot fatally six times at a McDonald's in Chicago over the weekend? Of course not. He was referring to a phantom. That phantom is the idea of systemic police bias. It is outrageous on the part of our leaders, whether it's President Biden or former President Obama today, who came out with another phony lie-filled statement that the police are systemically racist and blacks are right to fear for their lives from the cops. That is a lie. Here's the facts, Tucker. Last year, there were 15 allegedly unarmed blacks fatally shot by the police out of a population of blacks of 40 million in this country. That represents 0.2 percent of all blacks who were killed in homicide last year, killed by other blacks. The deep- So that's a old school racist canard that like, oh, well, if, I mean, this isn't quite how she's framing it, but it used to be like, oh, how can we expect them to integrate with, integrate with civilized people if they're all just killing each other? We're only shooting 0.2% of them. I don't understand what the problem is. Yeah. The demoralization of law enforcement resulted last year in the largest single percentage increase in homicide in U.S. history. That increase is continuing. It is spreading into the suburbs. This country is now being held by riot extortion and the rule of law is breaking down and public safety is not going to return as long as this phantom narrative about police racism remains dominant in the Democratic Party and in our presidential administration. Heather McDonald, thank you very much for that. Thank you. Appreciate it. So, that was when I, that was when I realized Tucker is just filling time in this episode because he has nothing prepared. <laughs> like he he brings Heather McDonald on to give a quick take. He provides no feedback or follow up whatsoever, and just moves on. Um, that's how this entire episode goes. He's got nothing to fill this big empty outrage with. Um, and so. Listening to this, I was like, fuck, I can't make an episode out of this. Like, I, yeah. just over and over again, him saying the same bullshit must be like, oh, well, that's bad. Like, yeah, right. And she's she's like, oh, homicide rates are going up. Gosh, I wonder why. I wonder if there's some reason that people are <laughs> being cooped up with each other and like, <laughs> that's outside of their control uh, and, yeah. and might be causing undue stress on their finances and their lifestyle that might cause people to... <laughs> Yeah, uh, all all of the reading I've done about murder rates going up in this past year, um, experts all soon agree that anybody who acts like they they know the one reason it's happening is full of shit. (laughs) So, I only have one more clip from Tuesday's show. 
This is at the very end. To close things out, Tucker gets real fucking cryptic. Before I go tonight, a quick piece of news from the world of big tech. We spent the day hearing from quite a few old college classmates, in some cases people we've been out of touch with for 30 years. It was nice, but here was the occasion for it. Jeff Bezos had one of his minions, a mentally unbalanced middle-aged man called Eric Wempel, pull our dusty college yearbook and call around to see if we'd done anything naughty at the age of 19. That sounds like fun. Let us know if you hear any good stories. But before Bezos drops any more of his billions on opposition research, you should know that it will not affect any election outcome. This is a news show. It's not a political campaign. No one here is running for anything or plans to. On the other hand, if Jeff Bezos wants to come over to reminisce about 1987 on this show, he's always welcome anytime. Yes. Yeah, so did any of that mean anything to you? No. What? <laughs> Jeff Bezos isn't running for anything. How does he do opposition research on? Yeah. It, what, what does that mean? <laughs> it, th- this was very confusing at the time. Um, so here's here's what he's talking about. Though it's not at all clear. <laughs> um, at the time of this airing, a Washington Post story was about to drop that revealed uh, a page from Tucker Carlson's 1991 college yearbook in which Tucker listed himself as a member of the Dan White Society. Um, now, Dan White was the name of a man who, in 1978, killed San Francisco's mayor, as well as the city supervisor, Harvey Milk, who was California's first openly gay elected official. Um, ah. Furthermore, because <laughs> uh, it's worth noting that Tucker grew up in that area, so he would have been familiar with Harvey Milk's murder. But in case that wasn't overt enough... Tucker goes on in that yearbook entry to list himself also as a member of the Jesse Helm Foundation. Jesse Helms was a North Carolina senator who, who vehemently opposed homosexuality as well as the integration of schools. So, the like the racial integration? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so Tucker lists himself as a member of a society for a really homophobic senator um, and also a club for the man who killed California's first openly gay official. Uh, you know, naughty is one word for that, <laughs> but it's, it's, I don't think that's the word I would use. <laughs> yeah, so here, T- Tucker knew that story was about to drop, and he was kind of preemptively prepping his audience to hear mean things about him. The way Tucker talks about this story is so weird, though. He seems to imply that because Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post, uh, his staff were getting contacted by tech industry whistleblowers all day, warning them that the story was about to drop. In actuality, I'm nearly certain that Tucker found out about this because the Washington Post reached out to him for comment, because that's how it always works. He just needs to make it sound sinister and exciting and make it a part of this deep state conspiracy against him. Yeah, he's calling journalists Jeff Bezos minions. Like, (laughs) I don't think Jeff Bezos does any micromanagement at the Washington Post. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I doubt Jeff Bezos does much of anything other than, like... Communicate uh, with his mothership. Um, <laughs> he he also wants to paint this as opposition research, which is the first time I've taken the possibility seriously that he might run for office. <laughs> uh, I don't want to think about that. I don't uh, want to think about that at all. Hey, I, I do. We're getting into the ground floor, baby. <laughs> <laughs> okay, to be fair, it would give us a lot to talk about, but it would not give us anything pleasant to talk about. So yeah, that, that that's all that I took from Tuesday's show. When a Wednesday rolls around, Tucker isn't even close to done talking about the Chauvin trial. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. Oh, the drama. 
But at least the Chauvin trial is over. Officer Derek Chauvin was convicted yesterday on all counts. The trial went on for more than a month, and at times the testimony was complex and it was technical. But at the center of the case, there was always really just one piece of relevant evidence, and it was the videotape of George Floyd's death in the street in Minneapolis in May. If you haven't seen the tape recently, it remains every bit as shocking as the day it was shot. You watch it and you can see that George Floyd knows on some level that he's going to die. And in the end, of course, he does die. It's crushing that way. Millions of Americans reacted in that way. They saw it. They were horrified. And many decided as they watched it that Officer Chauvin must have committed an act of criminal brutality. So really, it's not surprising that the jury yesterday concluded the same thing. The images in that tape seem to tell the whole story. So here's Tucker feigning a retreat. Um, I think he sensed the temperature getting a little hot, so he's going to cool things down just a little bit before, by the end of this, he's going to double right back down. And in fact, honestly, it is possible that even if no one outside the courtroom in Minneapolis had ever seen that tape, just the jury, it's possible Derek Chauvin still would have been convicted. The tape is that powerful. That's totally possible. Unfortunately, we don't know that. We can only speculate about it because that's not at all what actually happened. The George Floyd video went around the world. It became the centerpiece of a new political movement. Political actors harnessed the emotion over that video and over Floyd's death to control the country and change it forever. And then, and this is the key and the thing that we should think a lot about, in the last month, some of these same people went further than that. They worked to change the outcome of Derek Chauvin's trial. Yeah, so he, he acknowledges the video is horrifying and admits there might have been a chance that Derek Chauvin would be convicted without outside interference. Um, then after he's laid out enough fluff to cushion his fall, he jumps right back into the same bullshit from yesterday. Because it's just not feasible that evidence can be strong and prove a guilty verdict. Like, <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's fucking annoying. Um, in particular, on this episode, Tucker is mad that Democrats aren't satisfied with this whole systemic racism thing yet. Didn't we just have a month-long trial that presented all the evidence? Yes, we did. But once again, that was just the start. So what can we expect next? Well, it's hard to know exactly, but there are signs. Here, for example, are BLM activists celebrating the verdict last night in New York. Now, George Floyd died 1,200 miles from New York in a totally different region. Presumably, they didn't know George Floyd. They probably didn't watch his trial. But for people like this, justice for George Floyd isn't the point. Never-ending ethnic conflict is the point. Listen. So, might there be some other way you could phrase never-ending ethnic conflict? Yeah. Is, is there maybe a different verbiage there? Like, uh, <laughs> oh, race war! Yeah! <laughs> Jesus Christ, Tucker. It's like... It's like so obvious. It's like he's not even trying to... <laughs> yeah, uh, he's gonna play a, a clip here of some BLM protesters chanting outside a, a restaurant in Detroit. Um, at, at one point they yell, like, we don't want your fucking taqueria, which kind of made me laugh. But... Also, he insinuates that, like, they didn't know George Floyd. Juries are supposed to be unbiased. Like, you don't invite, like, George Floyd's wife and mom onto the jury like what (laughs) yeah so people with the wrong skin color now have to leave new york city they're not allowed to own restaurants that's what they just said everyone of course pretends 
not to notice that they said it, but they did say it. The point is, people didn't used to talk like this in public. And when they did, they were scolded at the very least. You can't have a multi-ethnic nation hold together if people are going to scream stuff like that on the street without anyone disagreeing with them. So why are they doing it now? Well, they're doing it for one simple reason. It gets results. Radicalism works. Violence works. That's the lesson. We've taught them, being the mob, that lesson. So this is a good example of something that I've wanted to point out about Tucker is that he doesn't want anyone to talk about race ever. Um, people didn't used to talk this way out loud, and if they did, they were punished. Well, and in his conception, that was better because there wasn't all this, you know, protesting and racial animus. Um, the thing is that doesn't mean the problems weren't there. It means people weren't didn't have a voice to talk about them. Right. Uh, Ezra Klein has a book, Why We're Polarized. It's, it's really good. People should read it. Um, but he, he talks about in that book how um, during periods in America where there's been less political polarization, um, a lot of it had to do with between the two parties, there was a consensus around white supremacy, and so neither of them talked about racial issues. And so it's there was less fighting between the parties. Okay, so we don't fight when we pretend there aren't any problems. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, and I, I, I don't think Tucker has uh, fully considered that as being the reason why his childhood seemed more peaceful. Yeah, and like, I, this is only kind of, but it reminds me of like the, what's it called? When they intentionally um, put things in the way of where homeless people sleep so that oh, people yeah. don't have to see homeless people, but, like, without actually solving the homelessness problem. Yes, that is a great analogy. They're, like, they're just trying to, like, I don't want to feel like there's poor people around me. I don't want to feel like there's black people around me. Yeah. <laughs> um, it feels like that. Um, like, because seeing, seeing those things, seeing people in desperate straits makes you uncomfortable. And kind of the natural function of being uncomfortable is to force change and Tucker's job is to make you is to tell you that you're right for being uncomfortable and you don't have to change. Yeah. So. Conservatives in general, but Tucker in particular. <laughs> um but what are the consequences of this ethnic conflict, you ask? Tucker has gone out into the wilderness and found some numbers. Well here's some data, and it comes from, of all places, the website Vox, which cites the following study. Quote from 2014 to 2019, a researcher called Campbell tracked more than 1,600 BLM protests across the country, largely in bigger cities, with nearly 350,000 protesters. Now, the net result was, quote, roughly 300 fewer police homicides in census places that saw BLM protests. Okay, 300. But here's the cost of that, and we're quoting. Campbell's research also indicates that these protests correlate with a 10% increase in murders in the areas that saw BLM protests. That means from 2014 to 2019, there were somewhere between 1,000 and 6,000 more homicides that would have been expected if places with protests were on the same trend as places that did not have protests. You following the math there? Thanks to BLM, says this researcher, Police shot about 300 fewer suspects. And in exchange for that, up to 6,000 new murders took place, many of innocents and children. So that's the bargain that we have made. 
And we just doubled down on that. All right, Troy, I feel prepared for this one. I have taken a college statistics class. <laughs> uh, correlation does not imply causation, you fucking twit. Ding, ding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't like his framing that it's a trade-off or, like, People killing people is always bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, no one. I don't think anyone's going to disagree with that. Murder's bad. But that said, as you caught on by the by the use of the word correlation there, <laughs> Tucker is significantly misrepresenting this data. Yeah. Uh, while the key finding of Campbell's research was that cities that experienced BLM protests also experienced a reduction in killing by the police, the subsequent correlation to murder rates is a bit more complicated. I'm going to quote now from that same Vox article, the Vox article that Tucker is referencing. Uh, Campbell's study finds that BLM protests correlate with a 10% increase in murder. That is, there were a few thousand more homicides in the places where, where there were BLM protests than would have been expected if those places followed the same trends as the ones that didn't see protests. We don't know why BLM protests correlated with an increase in the murder rate, and there's not a lot of research in this space to help guide us. Additionally, Campbell's research question was focused on the effect of BLM protests on police homicides. So these other observed changes regarding other homicides were not subjected to the same robustness tests. But from talking with experts, there are a few ways that we can understand what may be happening here. First, it's possible that criminal activity rises in areas that have seen protests, because people stop calling the police or working with them out of fear or anger, thereby emboldening criminal behavior. Moreover, some experts believe people will try to resolve their disputes extrajudicially if the system loses legitimacy following a police homicide. If this were happening, we would expect to see a reduction in the reported rates of low-level crime. Fewer low-level crimes would be reported relative to high-level crimes like murder. Murders are less likely to go unnoticed because, well, there's a person missing and there's a body. So the murder rate is usually the best indicator of what's actually going on with crime writ large. Campbell observes a significant increase in the murder rate, but, but a simultaneous 8.4% decrease in total property crimes reported. That is consistent with people voluntarily reducing interactions with the police, and other criminolo criminologists are in favor of this explanation. However, research by Michael Zurab, a PhD student at Harvard University, finds that across a large number of cities, incidents and analytic strategies of well-publicized brutality incidents do not reduce 911 calls. To report common property or violent crimes, casting doubt on the idea that police homicides reduce voluntary civilian engagement with police. One other possible explanation for the increased murder rate is that law enforcement officials are the ones voluntarily reducing their interactions with the community, and as a result emboldening criminal activity. One way to observe whether police are reducing their effort is to see whether the share of property crimes cleared falls over this period. In other words, are police not trying as hard, either because they are demoralized or angry at public scrutiny of their behavior, to solve low-level crimes that are reported to them? Campbell observes a 5.5% decline in the share of property crimes cleared, which is consistent with police reducing their efforts immediately following the protests. The good news is that even if Campbell's finding, out, finding about the increase in murders following BLM protests holds up to further scrutiny, the effect doesn't appear to last for long. By year four, Campbell no longer observes a, a statistically significant increase in murders, indicating that whatever is going on with murders hopefully is not long-term. 
None of Campbell's data covers the protests in 2020 or the rise in murders in 2020. As German Lopez explains for Vox, some, some experts have cited the protests this summer over the police killings of George Floyd and others, but COVID-19 made the year so unusual that experts are cautious about drawing any conclusions yet. So it, there's a lot in there, but basically, like, it, the, the research that Campbell did, it, there was no, there was no, like, robust measuring of the non-police murders, and so it's impossible to draw any kind of line there. Um, and there are a couple of prevailing theories over why murder rates in these cities might go up, but the effect appears to be short-lived. Um, so after that, Tucker is mad that AOC said that racism and climate change are related. Uh, and he brings on Mark Stein to discuss. Here, Stein has a very convoluted explanation for why the two can't possibly, possibly be connected. The, the transatlantic slave trade reached its height during the Little Ice Age, uh, which was also when the French and Indian Wars occurred. So there appears to be no correlation at all between uh, racism and climate change, uh, between indigenous rights. And then I thought, what the hell am I doing? This is rubbish. This what? is supposed to be... This is... A what? <laughs> yeah, uh... The transatlantic, the transatlantic slave trade peaked during a little ice age, so therefore there's no connection between racism and climate change. Is that even true? I didn't think ice ages were that. I didn't think there were any major ice ages that recently. Yeah, I, I don't know. I okay. Like, I wanted to look into that, but like, it, it's, it, it's, it's not, not a, a serious deal. point. Yeah, it's not a big deal. <laughs> um, yeah, obviously, what they're complaining about the AOC said about the climate change racism being connected is that people who are victims of racism have fewer resources and a lower and a smaller safety net. So they're more susceptible to the effects of climate change. Exactly. Um, but I, I mostly kept this, this Stein segment in because of what he says next. I've been in a 10-year lawsuit in Washington, DC up against the guy who invented the climate change hockey stick. Um, <laughs> the climate change hockey stick. Yeah, that uh, that really caught my ear. Um, what do you mean invented? <laughs> yeah, let's see if you can. Uh, is, is it like a staff? Like, can he can he control <laughs> climate change with yeah, it? Yeah, I thought maybe it was like some sort of uh, like novelty hockey stick that. You, you could buy to raise money for climate change. I, <laughs> I, I mean, I would have just but, assumed it was just a hockey stick that said climate change on it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, I'll play the rest of that clip and see if you can get a better idea what the climate change hockey stick might be. <laughs> And he's a scientist, and his position is that uh, in the last millennium, nothing happened for nine centuries, and then you, Tucker, got into your SUV and fried the planet. New what? Taka? What? Did I did I mishear something? It must be. Let me try again. That's a short one. What? I've been in a ten-year lawsuit in Washington D.C. up against the guy who invented the climate change hockey stick, and he's a scientist. And his position is that uh, in the last millennium, nothing happened for nine centuries, and then you, Tucker, got into your SUV and fried the planet. Tucker. <laughs> Wait, Tucker got into the SUV? Yeah. 
Oh, okay. Sorry, I, I think there's something in my American spirit that just prevents me from understanding his, <laughs> his horrible accent. And you know what's funny? Last week when we were complaining about how, how much we hated Mark Tyne's voice, I forgot that he is the voice at the beginning of our intro music. <laughs> I was like, do not fear, Tucker Carlson, that's Mark Stein. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't know who this guy is who invented a climate change hockey stick or whatever, <laughs> um, but I don't think the consensus is that nothing happened for 900 years. Um, <laughs> however, a little over 100 years ago, we did have something called the Industrial Revolution, which was a pretty big deal yep. for the atmosphere and the climate. You, you, you nailed it. So the climate change hockey stick is a graph created by a Penn State climatologist named Michael Mann. The graph chart, er, charts the Earth's temperature since the year 1000, showing a slow, steady decline, followed by a sharp turn upward in the 20th century. So it's a hockey stick because like it, it's like a straight line for a while and then a sharp up decline. Okay, okay. The, the use of the word invention here is... <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe a stretch... <laughs> Um, the lawsuit that Stein is referencing began in 2012. Rand Simberg, a member of an anti-regulation think tank, also a guy named Rand that works in an anti-regulation think tank. Dude, what is it with <laughs> everyone naming, every libertarian naming their son Rand? <laughs> but yeah, um, Rand Simberg, a member of an anti-regulation think tank called the Competitive Enterprise Institute, wrote a blog post in which he compared Mr. Mann, the climatologist, to serial, child, to serial child sex predator Jerry Sandusky. The blog post said, quote, man, man could said to be the Jerry Sandusky of climate science, except instead of molesting children, he has molested and tortured data in the service of politicized science that could have dire economic consequences for the nation and the planet. Wait, instead of molesting children? Is this assumed as a, <laughs> as a default? Yeah. Uh, instead of molesting children, he's molested data, Tyler. <laughs> Um, like, like, what? Okay. okay. The, the the children thing, he he's comparing him to another for Penn State employee, Jerry Sandusky, who molested children. Okay, okay. Um, All right. Let's see. A after that blog post, Mark Stein, who at the time was a writer for the National Review, quoted that blog post on the National Review's website, hence his involvement in the lawsuit. This um, man eventually sued them all for defamation. The ACLU actually wound up getting involved in on behalf of Stein and Company, saying that the content in the blog is protected by is protected speech. Um, and as a result, this case has been, has been working its way through appellate courts for a decade now. Uh... Yeah, so after we say goodbye to goodbye to Mark Stein, um, Tucker just can't let that sweet, sweet white genocide theory go. <laughs> is a member of Congress. He's a Democrat. He represents the state of California. He's incredibly smart. He went to Stanford and Georgetown. So when Ted Lieu speaks, you're really seeing the Democratic Party's brain trust on display. And with that in mind, we wanted to bring you one of his recent pronouncements. This is a tweet, and it's in response to one of his colleagues, the Congressman Scott Perry. Now, Perry was making an argument we have often made because it's true. And that is that Democrats are using mass immigration to transform the country to change who votes so they can control who wins. Ted Lieu was very annoyed 
that Scott Perry said this. And so he sent the following tweet, and he was clearly enraged as he did. Quote, Dear Scott Perry, native-born Americans like you are no more American and no less American than an immigrant like me. Good point. We agree with that. And then he said this. And with every passing year, there will be more people who look like me in the United States. You can't stop it. So take your racist replacement theory and shove it. In other words, you're being replaced and there's nothing you can do about it. So shut up. <laughs> Luckily, with people like Ted Lieu in charge, they're not going to get a lot done. Guys, I'm a moron. Okay. Was he being sarcastic when he said we agree that, that uh, I, immigrants are just as American as Amer people born in America are? Because he emphatically does not agree with <laughs> yeah. that in every episode yeah. we've covered. Yeah, I think there was somebody standing behind the teleprompter like, not this week. Not this week. <laughs> <laughs> so Ted Lieu is like, it, t take your great replacement theory and shove it. And then Tucker was like, oh, Ted Lieu says you're being replaced and there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> like, and, and I... I I think we talked about this last week, but, like, he's taking a natural process and, a, and like, attributing malice and, like, a villain behind it. Like, immigration yeah. isn't, like, no one is, like, sending people here. Right. No one, like, it's just an appealing place to live, so people want to move here. That's a natural process. And it's not like Democrats are... You know, oh, we need as many immigrants as possible because we need voters. They just like want to help people generally. Yeah. I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you remember when uh, when all this great replacement discourse started on Tucker's show, Tucker said that the left becomes hysterical when he mentioned the word replacement, and they become hysterical because it's true. Yeah. So <laughs> may, may, Tucker should maybe examine it when he becomes hysterical when he's uh, he's accused of certain things. <laughs> oh. It was a false allegation, Troy. <laughs> he was mentally handicapped, Troy. <laughs> so to finish off Wednesday's show, he brings on uh, Louisiana Senator John Kennedy to make fun of AOC some more. John Kennedy is not what you might call a dynamic speaker, but he does say something here that really tickled me. No fair-minded person believes that cops, many of whom are racial minorities, get up every day and go to work hoping for the opportunity to be able to hurt someone, including but not limited to people of color. That's nonsense. But the wokeristas, like the congresswoman, they really believe that. They really do. Yeah, wokeristas. <laughs> <The> wokeristas. <laughs> Is, is that like the is that like the feminine wokes? There's the wokes and the wokeristas. Yeah, that's a new one. <laughs> they really do hate cops just because they're cops. They really do want to defund the police, which will result in a a, a fantastic impression of hell. So I'm officially renaming this podcast a fantastic impression of hell. <laughs> think that's a better description of what we do <laughs> defund the police what a great word i hope that catches on uh, <laughs> um okay. yeah that might hey he came up with it that word you were looking for earlier. yeah yeah <laughs> this is a great idea <laughs> oh man um 
so that's all I've got from Wednesday's show. When Thursday rolled around, I thought, okay, we've got some distance between us and the Chauvin trial now. I'm sure Tucker has something else to talk about by now. And unfortunately, <laughs> I was correct. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. Good news tonight. After a decades-long search by a blue-ribbon commission of internationally renowned experts from McKinsey and Company and Yale Law School, the Democratic Party announced that it has finally identified the single most grotesque, most dystopian, most anti-human policy ever adopted by a Western government. They've been looking hard to find that, as you may have noticed. At a triumphant press conference yesterday, leading Democrats unveiled their findings, which are now a plank in the party's platform. They're going to allow children to stab each other. What? Do, do you know what he's talking about? No. Uh, so, last week, a uh, a 16-year-old girl wa- who was involved in an incident involving a knife, um, she was shot to death by a cop who arrived on the scene. Um, oh, is this the one that happened hours after the, the verdict came out? Yes. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah Tucker... Uh, he did mention it a little bit on Wednesday, but th- this is the first time he's really getting to it. Okay. okay. Um, and uh, he 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 does this cheeky bullshit that now it's, oh, the Democrats' new platform is they're going to allow children to stab each other. And because I had to listen to this, I'm going to inflict it all, on all of you, too. Now, stabbing people has long been taboo in this country, especially for those under the age of 18. For decades, young Americans have hidden their switchblades, their stilettos, their K-bars, their machetes. Kids were forced to live as if plunging blades into strangers was something to be ashamed of, instead of a normal, healthy part of childhood. But no more. Knife fights are human rights. Stabbing can finally come out of the closet. In some ways, it's a return to the future. The right to stab has been restored to the pantheon of freedoms our Mayan ancestors enumerated thousands of years ago in our founding document, the Declaration of Diversity. Going forward, allowing children to stab others will be enshrined in law alongside America's other core foundational rights. The right to commit voter fraud, the right to free body piercings, the right of trans illegal aliens with pituitary disorders to become fighter pilots. What the fuck is that list? Oh, God, shut the fuck up, Tucker. Yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah, th- this is this is so fucking, like... Ew, it's it's slimy. And the things he thinks are funny, like, it... Oh, the... Our founding document, the Declaration of Diversity. F- fuck off. <laughs> yeah. Our Mayan ancestors? You would have hated Mayans back then, too, because they were brown. <laughs> like... <laughs> These are the rights upon which this nation was founded, the rights the Democratic Party exists to protect. Now, not everyone embraced the news. Some called it a form of child sacrifice. Of course they did. As Kamala Harris often points out, bigots hate progress. They want to take this country back to the dark ages, a time when America's residential neighborhoods were safe and people liked each other. But there's no going back. On Tuesday, some Neanderthal in Columbus, Ohio, a racist probably, called 911 to complain about an attempted stabbing, which at the time, if you can believe it, was considered a bad thing. Let's all go back to the time when I didn't have to see black people. Those were the times. <laughs> yeah, th- this is so fucking disrespectful. Like, 
There's a family right now grieving because their teenage daughter was shot to death, and Tucker is on national TV doing this bullshit. Yeah, and I I feel like we're I'm often comically like cruel to Tucker, but like. I understand why people who only watch this are terrified of Democrats. Right. Like, when yeah. I think they're just inept idiots 90% of the time. <laughs> yeah, that, that's something I think is really important. That, like, I, I don't do a good enough job of hitting on the show, I don't think. It's like, hey, put yourself in the shoes of somebody who, like, your, your main source of information about the world is Tucker Carlson. Yeah, and then you think your political opposition is like, yes, I want children to stab each other. That is my position, That which yeah. no one has ever said. Yeah, no. Ever. <laughs> Like, it's so comically evil. Like, no one would ever say that. <laughs> yeah, it's that. fucking ridiculous. But he gets away with it. It's ridiculous. I don't even. I don't even want to fight with him much about this story. I mean, like, it, like I said earlier, the audience doesn't need me to be outraged for them, and I can't. He's just taking a cruel, vile position on true events, and yeah. I, I think he's wrong. I can't like. I don't even understand where he's getting the, like, what, what Democrat said something that made, what, I don't. Yeah, there was a, the big, the the main thing he quotes is a Brie Newsom, who's a BLM activist, who she tweeted something like, uh, teenagers have been having fights forever, we don't need, I I think it was like, we don't need a, a man with a gun trained to handle violent offenders to show up to defuse the situation. Okay, true. Uh, yeah. Uh, Maybe she wouldn't have been shot four times. Yeah, with wasn't it within like twenty two seconds of of him arriving? Yeah, I I'm, I didn't read into it enough, but I I thought I read that she got shot four times. Yeah. Um. So then Tucker bring he plays the video of her getting shot too. Like, it's what fuck. the fuck? You yeah. can do that on cable? Uh, fucking apparently. But you can't say ass. Like, <laughs> like what? <laughs> Um, he brings on a radio show host named Vince Caglianius to talk about this, and they really roll around in the mud for a minute. As a child, Vince Colonies once had to cut a man. It was illegal. Colonies, apparently. (laughs) (sighs) As a child, Vince Colonies once had to cut a man. It was illegal back then, but he emerged somehow to host a popular morning show on WMAL in Washington. He joins us now to assess this new world. Vince, thanks so much for coming on. You gotta wonder... This isn't liberal, it's totalitarian. These people are totalitarians. And you wonder how long a totalitarian movement like theirs can persist when it's this crazy, this anti-human, this destructive, when they're literally mad because a cop prevented a little girl from getting stabbed to death. That enrages them. How can this continue as a political party? Sincere question. Yeah, I mean, now this is this is the ultimate test. They're telling you don't believe your own eyes. Like You need to change your value system now to accommodate them, to make them more powerful. It's an amazing thing. And what's the most amazing thing about this story is they don't come out, the left hasn't come out and like conceded that they were wrong and they said, well, the visual evidence shows that this was totally justified. They don't point to the fact that black lives were actually saved by the police officer, that the people who made the phone call to the police were black, asking to be saved from an imminent stabbing. Uh, They don't say any of that. Instead, what they're doing now is trying to backfill all of it to say, well, actually, you know what's happening is stabbings in America are like totally normal. And like, who would be against those? Like, of course we have stabbings. And now the party, which constantly says that you as a legal gun owner can't have a rifle, 
is now saying that the world we need to live in is one in which people can can stab each other without any sort of consequence in a, in a country where every year 1000 more people die of knife stabbings than they do of rifle killings this yeah so uh what he just threw out there um as far as that stat Vince mentioned about knife deaths versus gun deaths he's technically telling the truth but that's because he's being sly about his phrasing um, annually, there are more murders committed with knives than with rifles. However, knives are only the third most com common murder weapon. The first, by a huge margin, is handguns, followed by uh, firearms where the type is not specified. Um, so the uh, knives are the third most common murder weapon. Um, Handguns kill roughly six times as many people per year as knives, and guns of an undisclosed type kill another three times as many. So Vince can only get away with that line if he narrowly specifies rifles. And also, he's got a false dichotomy going here. Like, if only there was something in between getting saved from a stabbing at all and getting shot to death... <laughs> Yeah. Like the only so why is it the only solution to being threatened with a knife is getting shot to death? Yeah. There what about arrest and like non-lethal <laughs> This is what they're endorsing because again, it's not actually about lives, it's not about saving anyone, right. it's that's not right. about preventing anything. It's about empowering themselves and they think if they can inflame racial tensions, boy, that's going to create more power for them. Yes, it, it, this was the point where I just couldn't do it anymore. Like, immediately after spending three days smearing dirt all over the Chauvin trial, Tucker goes into this, Tucker launches into another tragic police killing, and surprise, this one is also about Democrats trying to seize more power. It, yeah, just... And Democrats are the ones trying to inflame racial tensions. <laughs> yeah. What? what? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I didn't have the immunity to stance with them anymore this week. I needed a palate cleanser. Um, so this is where we get our great bifurcation. <laughs> All right. I, I I looked around for something else to occupy me, and I I thought it was as good a time as I needed to check out Gutfeld. Oh God. Um, and I'll be honest, <laughs> it's bad. <laughs> like he he has a studio audience that is only like kind of into it, <laughs> and um, it. It, it would be really hard for us to to do a full episode of it because it's a, it's a lot of it's a panel show, so okay. we'll have like five people on talking at once, and it's difficult to keep track of without the visual. Okay. Uh, however, as I listened to Gutfeld panel discussion from Tuesday night's episode, something caught my ear. Uh, the first voice you're going to hear is Judge Janine Pirro, and I'll identify the other panelists as they speak up. All right. Uh, I think the saddest part of it all is that the crowd seemed satisfied. Mm -hmm. They got justice. It was guilty on not just one count, but three counts. Yes. A whole indictment. Okay. Right. So they were happy and it was a cheer, like Mike Tobin said, like a, after a, a football game or something. Mm -hmm. All right. But that's not the way it's going to end. They're going to gin them up again. They're going to say, but what about this and this and this? Let us let us just live and enjoy this moment where justice worked, where we realize the criminal justice system is for everyone. Mm -hmm. But they're not going to let it happen. No, you look great in purple, though. I'm oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I love your sneakers. That's a boy, Greg. Uh, and we already talked about this, but like the seventh time 
that a cop has been convicted <laughs> in 15 years yeah. is not justice yeah. for shooting someone. I, I, I'm, I'm transfixed. The judge is a sharp dresser. It's true. Tyrus, all right. Hello, Greg. How are you? <laughs> so This guy, he's been on every episode of Gutfeld that I've watched. I think he's like, uh, his name is Tyrus. I think he's Greg's like de facto co-host. I'm good. How are you? What have you been up to? Oh, just watching the news. And were you watching the news or uh, were you watching Law and Order? No, I was, and then I flipped <laughs> over, and I was like, "Who is that screaming? Is that Gut? That is Gutfeld." <laughs> oh, you know what? Uh, first, I'd like to say thank you for being honest. Mm-hmm. It's not an easy thing to say something that was real. Yeah. We all got caught up in this narrative, and I'm ashamed to say I did myself. At one point, I'm watching this trial, and I'm starting to think, oh, what if they get reasonable doubt? What, if they do? what are we going to do? I got caught up in it. This was an open and shut case. Mm-hmm. I didn't know one person, and I don't think any of my, anyone in this building knew somebody who was like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't know. I mean, there was film. There was, there was nothing disputable. But still, it got lumped in to... Emmett Teal. It got lumped into all these things, and we, they started building a thing like, what if they get him off? What if? What if? To the point where we started taking something that was unequivocal. I mean, he even tried to plead to a yeah. lesser thing to get out of it because yeah. he knew he was done. <laughs> yeah. His reaction, you didn't need a mask to see, he knew it. Yeah. His lawyer prepared him mm-hmm. because they knew that this was an open and shut case. And it's sad affairs that the media needed us to think it was on the hinge. Mm. And we all, and it's sad that we bought into it. I myself am smarter than that. This was an open and shut case. Mm. In America, the justice system works, and we need to celebrate this moment, mm. and then we'll deal with the next situation as it comes. But for right now, the, the crying, the narratives, all have to rethink things. Right. Because it works. Yeah. And the jury of his peers, of all walks of life, men, women, different colors, whatever, they all... Right unanimously agreed yeah open a shut case that's the interesting thing uh, uh chadwick i uh, a friend of mine was talking about how this was such a polarizing case and i'm going <laughs> i'm going yeah and then i go wait a minute no everybody everybody <laughs> was on the same well and then i remembered that what he was talking about was or what he was he was tricked by the media to think there was like ju- there was w- people who want justice and people who hate black people that's how they well, yeah that was the but first of all i'm with you that i'm like i gotta walk out of fox uh, and this guy you're hearing now is Chadwick Moore. Tonight, after this <laughs> verdict, there better be armies of police cars lined up, you know, protecting us. I didn't think it was so open and shut. I'm sorry. I thought the defense laid out. A pr- I thought they did a good job really? for the work. I thought they laid out a pretty good. I case. thought the dr- when they said they that the drugs didn't charges, kill them. Though. Well, when they did, when they said because I was always thinking it was about fentanyl, and then when the process, when the, the the expert said like. No, it wasn't. That's what I thought was the the linchpin, the thing that ended it. But go ahead. Yeah, well, you had all the evidence, like with the with the camera, but the body camera. Yeah. It was more on the shoulder than the neck. You had the oxidation in the blood. I thought they had a pretty compelling case. I'm not mm-hmm. saying whether yeah. you know, how they, but the all three charges is pretty intense, like second right. degree manslaughter. I mean, I'm not a judge, but that implies a, a sort of intent to kill, right? Well, it was no, there was no, <laughs> yeah, there was no intent on any of the charges. I mean, right. it was really depraved indifference and felony assault. If you intend to assault someone and they die, then it's then that it's was the murder degree. too. And then there was depraved indifference and culpable mental states and all kinds of recklessness. But people uh, were always saying, you know, you just need if if they were to think he was innocent, one juror. But who would that? Would there be one person on that juror, some average person, who if they thought he was innocent? would want to be responsible for what would happen 
afterwards who'd want to be responsible for tens of millions, it's a fair hundreds question. of millions of dollars, who want to be responsible for the loss of life that would happen in the riots, who would want uh, yeah. their family and their livelihood yeah. to be yeah. attacked. The New York Times already threatened to dox these jurors, basically. Mm-hmm. But so, there's always one juror. It, there's there's yeah. a yeah. lot of them. Have they you seen one 12 juror. angry men? Yeah. I played the angriest man in a school. And this this uh, other woman here, when Greg was introducing the panel, I didn't I, I couldn't understand her name. Um, so we're just going to call, she calls herself juror number three. I'll stick with that. All right. We'll play. Wait a second. <laughs> so I might not be whoa, a whoa, judge, whoa, 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 but it's basically the same. They change it to 12 angry jurors. Really? So oh, that chicks could have oh, parts. Right. You know what? Nothing is safe anymore yeah. when they take the 12 angry men and they insert women into it. And as the n- n- juror number three... In high school, in 2006. Oh, my God. You were in high school. I I did think it was open and shut. I think that there's reasonable force, and I don't think there's anything reasonable about continuing to kneel on a guy that's clearly struggling and already handcuffed and unresponsive. Um, And it's not the role of the police to be judge, jury, and executioner. Mm -hmm. I am glad to see that everything worked out the way that it worked out today. Again, just... This is coming from juror number three right. in 2006. Here's the deal. I know you have brought that up just to tell everybody how young you are, and that's disgusting. Oh, yeah, we've all <laughs> added the numbers. That is really disgusting. <laughs> in two, uh, 2007, I was... 2006. In, 2006, I was in my early 20s just trying to make it. Okay. I'm, okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going there. But to that point, we usually see jurors are very sympathetic to police officers. Mm-hmm. And usually there is one juror who says, I believe, I'm going to support the police officer. Mm-hmm. Even in this in this case, we had police officers testifying against. against. Right, yeah. right. So That's this right. was an open and shut case because everyone knew what was wrong. So we need to we need to embrace that and move on from. It. Okay, I hope that wasn't too hard to follow. No, but so at first when uh, when Tyrus was talking, I was like, oh, this is weird. I didn't think they allowed reasonable people on Fox. But then they have Chadwick there to continue to sow doubt, even though it was pretty much an open and shut case. <laughs> yeah, what what was interesting to me is that of the five people in that clip, Chadwick Moore is the only one dissenting. The rest of them are way more moderate on this than Tucker is. Like, orders of magnitude, so. the only, When Chadwick Moore tries, uh, tries dissenting, they even kind of shut him down. Gene Pierre is like, well, no, they're... There was no intent. It was just uh, malicious indifference. <laughs> and um, but she, okay, she said there's no intent, but you you have intent to assault someone. So there is intent. It's just yeah. not murderous I, intent. I, I, I guess. doubt she's a very good judge. But <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they. I was just I was surprised to hear this after spending after hearing Tucker for four days in a row. Yeah, me like, too. They. I mean, they, they think it was the right verdict. They're happy to see Chauvin found guilty. Um, it's just so different than what, what what I was hearing from Tucker, and that got me curious. So I decided to check in on Hannity and see how he was covering this. And I apologize, you are about to hear Sean Hannity's voice. <laughs> Alert. Minneapolis, other cities, New York City preparing for potential unrest at this hour. This despite a jury finding former police officer Derek Chauvin guilty on all charges, second degree murder, third degree murder and second degree manslaughter in the horrific death of George Floyd. Chauvin's bail has now been revoked. He is in jail tonight with sentencing to take place eight weeks from now. And tonight he is facing the likelihood of decades behind bars. 
The video evidence in this case, it was substantial, it was overwhelming, and it was appalling. The jury arrived with their verdict less than 24 hours after being handed the case, not a single question asked by the jury to the judge. For nine minutes and 29 seconds, then-Officer Chauvin shoved his knee into the neck of George Floyd, who was handcuffed and on the ground, and Chauvin continued to apply pressure to Floyd's neck, as we have discussed on this program, the most vulnerable part of the human anatomy, even after Floyd was handcuffed, saying he can't breathe and fully complying with the police. The crowd that had gathered urged the officer to please stop. The knee stayed on George Floyd's neck even after he went unconscious, and the chief of police testified at this trial, this is not what officers are trained to do. So let me be clear. This is in no way an indictment of all police officers. This is a guilty verdict for one police officer. Everywhere, unlike others, on this program, we do make the distinction. Yeah, so, so Hannity is playing his cards a little bit closer to his vest, but he's definitely not defending Derek Chauvin. No. Uh, but he is saying this is not a systemic issue. This yeah. is one bad apple, which is yeah so liberal it makes me want to <laughs> drown myself. Yeah, he, he calls the video appalling. He says the evidence is overwhelming. And while he clarifies this isn't, isn't an indictment of all police, he seems comfortable at least calling Chauvin a bad apple and says he acted out of line. So he's still taking a much more reasonable position on this than Tucker. Which is really surprising. Yeah, so then, I to round out Fox's uh, late night crew, I, I took a look over at our girl Laura Ingram to see how she was covering this. Oh, God. <laughs> you apologized for Hannity's voice? Uh, on the day of the verdict, Ingram was kind of hard to pin down. She doesn't really talk about Chauvin much directly. She just she more talks about how the left is using the case as a means to attack all police officers. Uh, so since I wasn't getting any clear positions there, I I went back in time a little bit to see if I could get any indication of how she felt about this case in general. And um, it, this is how she covered it prior to the trial. And now, as far as we can tell, it looks like outrageous and even perhaps murderous behavior by Minneapolis police officers. Another black man in police custody, gasping for air, on the ground, defenseless, and then shortly thereafter dead. It's absolutely infuriating and heartbreaking. It's hard for just people to watch it at all. Sure is. Outrageous and perhaps even murderous behavior. Like... So these 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 are all the hosts on Fox's evening lineup, and Tucker is way more hardcore on this than yeah. all of them. Like never once has he said anything like that. No. Uh, so that was interesting to me because Tucker isn't just pulling the Fox News line; he's significant. He's significantly to the right of that line. And once I thought about it, that began to make some sense. Every time Tucker gets in trouble. Like when he said that immigrants make your country poorer, dirtier, and less safe, or yeah. when the Bubba the, the Love Sponge tape surfaced, um, which I can't wait to talk about someday. <laughs> uh, Tucker Show loses advertisers, and ads are like the main way Fox makes makes its money. So it seems like Tucker should have faced some consequences if his behavior was hurting the money machine, but this is why it isn't. Uh, when advertisers pull off of Tucker's show, they just move to buying slots on Hannity, Ingram, Engel, and Gutfeld. 
Um, and Tucker keeps drawing in the big audience because people like his brand. Uh, so he keeps eyes on the network and other shows sell their ad slots at a premium provided by the size of Tucker's audience. Um, so then that got me down a bit different of a rabbit trail. Since I, I very rarely watch Tucker's show live, I usually skip the ads. And this got me wondering, after, after everything that's happened, who is still advertising on Tucker's show? Toe fungus is tough to kill, and it can spread. It's... Yeah, so that, that was the first one I heard, and that made me pretty happy. Okay. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, I, I I spent some time looking at Tucker's advertisers. There's a, a website called iSpot TV that keeps track of um, it, like ad slots on, on cable TV. Okay. In, in particular, there's one advertiser that takes up the lion's share of Tucker's ad time. Um, th- this is This is one advertiser who has a little over 20% of the total ad time on Tucker's show. Okay. Um, any guesses who that might be? Uh, I'm terrible at guessing. Um, um, my pillow guy. Holy fuck, Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, I'm Mike Lindell. Yes! You know me as the my pillow guy, but what you might not know... God damn it. <laughs> the one time I get a good yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, Mike Lindell has at least one ad on like every fucking break on Tucker's show. All right. And a lot of them are my pillow ads, but not all of them. Like, th- there's this one that runs about half the time. Hello, I'm Mike Lindell. You know me as the My Pillow Guy, but what you might not know is my story. I was a former addict, including crack cocaine. My memoir will not only speak to entrepreneurs and those struggling with addiction, but also to anyone looking for hope. Throughout my life, I've always used mathematics to prove that God exists. We've all had moments in our lives that are a one in a million or a one in a billion, or we say, wow, that's impossible. Well, when do we add them together and say it has to be a miracle? My life has been like living inside of a movie. In my book, I have pictures that are going to validate everything you're going to read. I believe that my story is going to bring inspiration and hope to everyone. By the time you're done reading my book, you will believe that with God, all things are possible. Call now or visit MyPillow.com to purchase What Are the Odds? From Crack Addict to CEO. Use your promo code to get Mike's book for only $9.97 and free shipping. Mike spent the last seven years writing his book. It's not over. Oh my God, really? (laughs) to share his life story. In this difficult time we are in, Mike's book will bring much-needed inspiration and hope to everyone who reads it. But now the game was over. The house had won. I was going to die right here on this deserted street, a small item in the news. American tourist goes missing in Mexico. <laughs> Call now or visit MyPillow.com to purchase What Are the Odds? From Crack Addict to CEO. Use your promo code to get Mike's book for only $9.97 and free shipping. Mike's personal stories of transformation remind us that with faith, all things are possible. Call now or visit MyPillow.com to purchase What Are the Odds? From Crack Addict to CEO. Use your promo code to get Mike's book for only $9.97 and free shipping. Visit MyPillow.com or call now. Just 
keeps going. Yeah, it, there's actually more, but I'm gonna cut it. Oh there. my god! <laughs> so, wow, what a what a what a nice rags to riches story. It's a good thing that no one called the cops on him and he was strangled for being high on cocaine. <laughs> I I will say. Uh, when I, I, I didn't have an interest in reading Mike Lindell's book until he said he uses mathematics to prove the existence of God. A thing that has happened before. <laughs> I've got to see that shit. Outside of this book. Um, yeah, it, Mike Lindell is like the only fun crazy to pop up in the last <laughs> few years, so I appreciate it. Uh, the others are like fucking Nick Fuentes, and he's no fun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, he, here's the deal. I could do like a three-part series on my pillow guy there's so much to talk about <laughs> um i think it, i think it would be fun for us to do like a breakdown of his documentary about the election absolute proof um dominion voting systems sued him for 1.6 billion for yeah. defamation and yeah. he responded by suing them for 1.6 billion oh my god <laughs> um, so i the this is what I'm talking about when I say there are things I like this podcast to grow into. If you want to hear a three-part series on my pillow guy, <laughs> hit us up. <laughs> yeah, uh, other regular advertisers on Tucker's show include products like Alien Tape, um, which is uh, a neon green tape that is really sticky. Okay. Um, there's a shirt that's supposed to provide support for your back. Um, okay. They have tinfoil hats, too. <laughs> They're a bunch of, like, health supplements and shit and some gold-buying gold operations. Brain force. Yeah. In particular, there's, there's a Lear Capital, which is a gold and silver sales thing. And um, I think that Tucker might have done a segment a few weeks ago that was native advertising for them. I think there might be kind of a gold sales scheme going on here. Um, and then mixed in are some other right-wing propagandists, for example. Students from the age of five are no longer being educated. Most are being indoctrinated with left-wing ideas such as anti-Americanism, critical race theory, and sex education that robs them of their innocence. We need to counter these toxic messages. That is what PragerU is doing. Parents like me rely on PragerU's uniquely effective educational resources to teach our children our values that America is a good place, that we're all equal, and that color does not define who you are. After almost 10 years of creating content for college students, PragerU is now producing educational videos for kindergarten through 12th grade students. We're also bringing together parents and educators who are concerned about America's education and are willing to do something about it. We love America. We want our children to love America too. You can be part of this critical mission by making a tax-deductible donation to PragerU today. PragerU has TV ads for Tucker. Yep. Ew. Yeah, and then one thing that jumped out at me, too, I do not like that they're advertising content made for kindergartners now. Yeah. Uh, that does not make me very happy. Yeah. Um, I assume that if you listen to this podcast, you're probably politically engaged enough to know what PragerU is, but... um. It's just propaganda. <laughs> yeah, that commercial was propaganda. They're like, "Oh, America's a good place, and everybody's equal." America's a good place for some people, and not everybody is equal right now. But we would like it to be, and we have to change it to make that the case. But yeah. they want you to think that everything's perfect right now because you're white and things are good for you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, 
it um they they release a bunch of quote unquote educational videos and, and courses and shit that are just propaganda. Yeah. Um, but usually they've always been focused on like young adults. Yeah. And at least then, if you encounter them, you probably have some critical thinking. Here, they're advertising programs made specifically for young children, which is upsetting. Yeah. So I, I don't like. I kind of would like to do a an investigation on Dennis Prager and Prager U too. I know I keep pitching like these projects <laughs> I want to do, but I have a lot of them. Um. So I this advertising thing. I, Going through Tucker's ads, I found a bunch of fucking grifters, and I, I, I think for four weeks when Tucker is late on content, I might make this a semi-recurring segment where we look at one of his advertisers. To make that official today, the one we're going to be focusing on, a little supplement called Relief Factor. Um, this is a supplement intended to relieve joint pain from inflammation. Um... And I was actually already familiar with Relief Factor before I saw this ad because I work in uh, consumer banking. And a lot of what I spend my time doing is helping old people deal with fraudulent charges on their accounts. Um, (laughs) And a lot of these are these shady-ass supplement companies, of which there are hundreds, that prey on old people by being dishonest about their free trials. (laughs) So, And Relief Factor is one of those. So relief factor costs eighty dollars a month. What? Yeah, yeah, it's it's fucking expensive. Jesus. But they offer a quick start discount on your first order for only nineteen ninety five. So hey, you can see if you like it before you make that big commitment, right? Except uh, now they have your credit card. Yeah, yeah, it's it's even shadier than you think. They call it a fifteen day quick start, so people reasonably think they have fifteen days to try the try the product and cancel the subscription if they don't like it. But um, that trial period doesn't start from when they receive the product. It starts from when they place the order. Uh, so then that there needs to be time for shipping and for them to get it in the mail. Mm-hmm. And then to cancel, um, they, they ask for a, a 24-hour waiting period. So people can conceivably end up with, like, four days in which to uh, try this product, see if it works, and cancel. <sighs> Otherwise, they're charged for the $80 renewal. Um I, I cannot stress how much I've dealt with this shit. I hate these companies so much. And there are hundreds of them. So, sometimes they, sometimes they send an actual product. Sometimes they don't. Um, usually, not about half the time, they don't have websites um, or any a working phone number. Working phone numbers are rare in this world. Uh, it, it's super frustrating. So, um, Relief Factor... Hat runs at is one of Tucker's biggest advertisers. Before we get further into the product, let me play you one of their ads. As people get older and struggle with pain, many think there's nothing they can do about it. Sebastian Gorka here for 100% drug-free Relief Factor, along with the owners, Pete and Seth Talbot. Pete, I'm sure you hear from a lot of skeptical people. Oh, you bet we do, but thank you. So before we get any further, you may have noticed that their their mascot is Sebastian Gorka. <laughs> now he likes to be he likes to be referred to as Doctor Sebastian Gorka, which I will not be doing because Sebastian Gorka is not a doctor. <laughs> it, not even like a fake doctorate, or I mean, probably even kind of stretching. Like, um, <laughs> 
Gorka first received national attention when he was brought on to work in the Trump Trump administration oh. as an expert on Islamic terrorism. Um, what? Expert was a stretch. Gorka does not speak Arabic, nor has he ever spent time to the Middle uh, nor has he ever been to the Middle East, and was described by Business Insider's policy editor Pamela Engel as quote widely disdained within his own field. Um, a number of academics and policymakers questioned Gorka's knowledge of foreign policy issues, his academic credentials, and his professional behavior. Andrew Reynolds. Professor of Political Science at the University of North Carolina at Capitol Hill, or I'm sorry, Chapel Hill, uh, questioned the validity of Gorka's doctoral degree, noting discrepancies between how doctorates are normally awarded and how Gorka's was awarded. Um, Reynolds said that the, that the evaluation of each referee on Gorka's PhD committee was, quote, a page of generalized comments completely at odds with the detailed substantive and methodological evaluations have seen every other PhD defense reference. Um, according to Reynolds, at least three, or at least two of the three referees had only a Bachelor of Arts degree, and the other, and one of the other referees had published with Corker previously. So basically, when you, when you get a PhD, you have to defend your thesis, and you're supposed to do that in front of other PhDs. Yes. Um, of the Of the three people who Gorka defended his thesis in front of. Two of them did not have PhDs, they just had, like, liberal arts degrees. And the third was somebody who had published a paper with Gorka previously, which isn't allowed in PhD defense. Okay, Um, so he doesn't have one, is what you're saying. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Georgetown University professor Daniel Nexon reviewed Gorka's PhD thesis and described it as, quote, inept saying it does not deploy evidence that would satisfy the most basic methodological requirements for a PhD. Okay, yeah, that's kind of what I was hoping to hear. (laughs) Nexon also ran Gorka's thesis text through plagiarism software, finding that portions of it were, quote, repurposed, and concluded he might as well have mail-ordered his PhD. Oh, God. Uh, But, Tyler, (laughs) in addition to being a fake academic, Gorka is also probably a Nazi. Uh, he he's a member of something called the Historical Order of the Vites. I might be pronouncing that wrong. This is a group working to restore the Order of Vites, of which Gorka's father was a member, and that's a hung- Hungarian organization that the U.S. State Department lists as having been, quote, under the direction of the Nazi government of Germany <laughs> during World War II. In 2017, Gorka appeared on Fox News uh, on the evening of the U.S. presidential inauguration, wearing a badge, tunic, and a ring of the Order of the Vitez. This has given a rise to claims that, Dor- that Gorka himself is a Nazi sympathizer. What? <laughs> he just put on the costume. That doesn't make him a Nazi. <laughs> Nazi or not, he is definitely a fan of far-right anti-Semitic groups. In 2017, Gorka declared his support for the Hungarian Guard, a paramilitary group described by various sources as neo-fascist and, neo-fascist and anti-Semitic. Gorka maintained support for this group despite the fact that the Guard was formally banned in Hungary in 2009, and this decision was upheld by the European Council of Human Rights due due to the group's racist activities. In 2016, Gorka was detained at the Ronald Reagan Airport for trying to board a plane with a gun. (laughs) Speaking of firearms, in 2018, BuzzFeed News and the Hungarian website 444.hu reported that Hungarian police had issued an arrest warrant for Gorka for 
firearm and ammunition abuse in, in 2016. They noted that the warrant had been in effect for the entire period of Gorka's service at the White House during the Trump administration. Oh my god. Jeez. <laughs> uh, so, ha- now, having been relieved of his post in the Trump administration, Gorka is on TV selling a relief factor. Keep in mind, not only is he a fake doctor, but he wasn't even pretending to be a medical doctor. But now here he is, shilling health supplements. And calling himself doctor. Bet we do, but thanks to Relief Factor, a person of any age really can feel better this next year than they did 5, 10, or even 15 years ago. Like this person. I had to learn to cut back on certain exercises that I used to do because they hurt too much. Since I've been on Relief Factor, I've been able to do these exercises again. I'm in much better shape and able to do those exercises without pain. If Relief Factor can help me and thousands of others, it can help you too. The three-week quick start is discounted to only $19.95. Go to relieffactor.com or call 800-4-RELIEF. Hundreds of thousands have already taken that first step. Maybe you should, too. So, the website openhealthtools.org, which reviews health supplements, lists Relief Factor as likely a scam. <laughs> and notes that it is, ridiculous, it is a ridiculously expensive supplement containing almost exclusively ingredients that don't do anything. <laughs> uh, they actually break down all of the ingredients in Relief Factor. It has 200 milligrams of epimedium, more commonly listed as horny goat weed. Uh, there's no specific evidence to suggest that epimedium has any effect on joint health whatsoever. To quote the Open Health Tools review, Until we see a study proving that supplementing epimedium helps reduce joint pain, we're going to assume it's total garbage. I'm actually, I think this is preferable because I was afraid he just like put a bunch of painkillers in it. So <laughs> he was going to like give people a heart attack while they were doing their exercises. Yeah. Th- the good news is that Relief Factor probably isn't dangerous. <laughs> it does contain 667 milligrams of turmeric. While turmeric does contain curcumin, which can, which actually can work to reduce joint pain caused by inflammation. You need to take it the right way for it to have any effect. The human body struggles to absorb turmeric if it is not combined with piperine, a substance found in black pepper that enhances the absorption by about 2,000%. Uh, Relief factor does not contain piperine or any other substance that would allow the body to absorb anything useful. Another ingredient is 70 milligrams of Japanese fleece flower root. To quote again from openhealthtools.org, we have absolutely no idea why Japanese fleece flower root is in relief factor. There's no evidence whatsoever that it has any effect on joint health or any other health. Uh, fleece flower is an invasive species in Japan that grows extremely quickly and aggressively and can do structural damage to homes if it's not quickly dealt with. Um, because it grows literally everywhere and becomes abundant quickly... It's really re- cheap to get. Yep. So, <laughs> bingo. <laughs> so Relief Factor probably just added, added it to the, to the formula to make the label look more interesting without having to spend any money. <laughs> yeah. Um, Make it sound exotic. Yeah. It's from Japan. Yep. Relief Factor does contain a small amount of EPA and DHA, DHA which are omega-3 fatty acids that can that are important for overall health and performance. But you can get them much, much cheaper than by getting them through Relief Factor. <laughs> um, now, the other voice you heard in that commercial was Pete Talbot. Uh, Relief Factor is owned by a, a pair of father and son serial entrepreneurs, Pete and Seth Talbot. I don't know if entrepreneur is the right word for it. (laughs) 
yeah. for what's going on here. Uh, the the Talbots run a bunch of scammy little companies that tend to run for a couple of years before folding over and making way for a new one. Um, one current example is a company they launched in 2020 called Honorbound Coffee. Honorbound Coffee is a subscription-based coffee company that claims 100% of its revenue goes to veterans for things like educational educational services, family support, and mental health treatment. Charity Navigator, which rates charities on their transparency and, transparency and efficacy, gives Honorbound Coffee a score of 28 out of 100. <laughs> also, uh, veterans have their education paid for. Why, yeah. why would they need a fund? <laughs> Uh, yeah, when you adjust for their payroll and operating expenses, only about 70% of their revenue actually goes to the programs they claim to support. Um, that's the kind of enterprise that the people behind a Relief Factor run. So it should come as no surprise that in 2019, the Center for Science and the Public Interest asked the Federal Trade Commission to take enforcement action against Relief Factor for fraud, arguing that the company had violated FC- FTC rules by presenting Sebastian Gorka as a medical doctor, which he is very much not. And now he's advertising on Tucker's show. Yep. <laughs> yep. So this has been uh, our new, currently unnamed segment on ads. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Tucker, it, Tyler, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> How you feel about the the week behind us? Um, I'm glad it's behind us. Um. I don't know. I'm the the Chauvin verdict is is good, but I've also heard that there are sources saying that it takes pressure off of politicians to um, actually get efforts toward reforming, defunding the police. Um, so good and bad. I like when murderers go to prison. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wish that happened more. Um, but it's a bold stance, Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> Murderers bad. I want to clarify, yeah. <laughs> Tyler's position does not reflect the official position of this podcast. <laughs> uh, but you know, overall, things are things are. Yeah. Yeah. It, here's what I came away with. Even though this week took a lot out of me, I actually came out feeling like I found something positive to close on. Tucker spent most of this week angry because he lost. It doesn't. It doesn't solve our broader problems as a society. It doesn't mean justice for so many others wrongfully killed by the police. But at the end of the day, Derek Chauvin is going to prison, and that's a, that's a good thing. Um, Tucker is mad because, despite all of his lies and propaganda and efforts to muddy the waters, this time his team lost. Even though it doesn't necessarily feel like it on a day-to-day basis, I think he's losing in the bigger picture too. That's why the most watched cable news show in history has been reduced to having its ad slots filled by shady supplement scams and fascist pillow salesmen. Yeah. Uh, it, that's the company he belongs in. <laughs> Nobody else wants to touch Tucker because everybody knows that on some level he's on the wrong side of history. And he knows that too. To use his words, that's why he becomes hysterical when he doesn't get his way. That's another foothold he's losing. We focused a lot last week on where Tucker's bad ideas come from, and we'll talk about that more in the weeks to come. But I think maybe there might be a reason some of those bad ideas keep popping up, again and again, decade after decade. Through different talking heads like Tucker. Maybe the friction of change creates these shitheads in its wake. Tucker spouts the same bigotry as his forefathers because, like them, 
He's a man terrified of change and increasingly abandoned by a world changing around him. Maybe Tucker Carlson is just an unfortunate but natural growth on the under uh, on the underside of history. Or, to put it differently, Toe fungus is tough to kill, and it can spread. <laughs> so... Oh, man. <laughs> so this has been a fantastic impression of hell. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> we'll see you next week, but in the meantime, we have a website, that's tuckeredoutpod.com. Uh, email the show, tuckeredoutpod at gmail.com. Um, find us on Patreon as well. Um, and if you if you have any, if you want me to prioritize like a Michael Lindell series or a PragerU series or anything you have in mind, f- feel free to let us know what you're interested in hearing more about. Um... But yeah, uh, try to have a good week. Don't watch Tucker's show. I'll do it for you, and have a good life. Thanks for listening. Buck up. It's going to get better. <laughs>